0: You know, I would say that the guys who actually excel as athletes, they're about the process of learning and less about like what kind of reward. they're They're not about the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. They're about the rainbow.
1: Podcast junkies episode two, one, one. Welcome back. I'm Harry Duran. This is the conversation you've been waiting for and you're waiting for it every week. If you're looking for conversations with amazing podcasters, is what I mean. Last week, we had the opportunity to speak to Amira Valiane. She's the co-founder and CEO of Glow.fm. It's a Patreon alternative specifically for podcasters. They're doing some really interesting stuff in the space. They're leveraging the fact that you can actually use your podcast app to solicit a donation recurring or one time from your listeners. Everything happens in the podcast app even the payment and the redirect to the new feed for people that sign up. So it's really, really intuitive, really cool. Check out glow.fm. Once again, we are brought to you by the Scarlett 2i2 sound card by the wonderful folks at Focusrite. Shout out to Dan Hewley. Can't say enough good things about this sound card. Super clean preamps, which provide a clean boost to your sound. So I've used it both with the Samsung Q2U microphone as well as the Shore SM7B which is a bit gain hungry and definitely requires a clean sound card. So this is the new 3G third generation sound card and it's guaranteed to make your audio sound completely professional. Head on over to podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus right to see the beautiful landing page they created for the latest line of sound cards. This week I get to speak to mark sullivan he is the host of the snowboard project shout out to stephanie lahart for making the introduction he's definitely a og when it comes to media he's uh, worked on a couple of magazines. He's actually commentated on several Olympics. He's got a really funny story about what happened at the most recent one. Make sure you um, listen in for that. It's a great story (laughs) about resourcefulness and uh, just his history as a snowboarder and some of the interesting things he did when he got his show started. You won't believe how many episodes he actually started with. It's amazing and inspiring. So this is a really fun interview. His energy is, is really great. I really have fun in this conversation with Mark. If you haven't already joined, fans of the show can stay on top of the latest episodes and comment on guests at the Podcast Junkies Junkies Facebook group, so make sure you join there. This episode is also brought to you by Fullcast, our full-service, done-for-you podcast production agency. If you need help starting a show or have some consulting questions related to your existing show, feel free to set up a free chat with me at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15. That's chat one five. Make sure you stay to the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag. But for now, let's hit the slopes with Mark. So Mark Sullivan, host of The Snowboard Project. Thanks so much for joining us on Podcast Junkies. Thanks for having me. We were connected through Stephanie Lahart. Is that correct? Yeah. How do you know Stephanie? Yeah, totally.
0: Um, I just, we we got it talking about... um, I don't know how we met initially, but we got started talking about podcasting and we got just back. We just got this back and forth going. And then I ended up sending her a copy of the
1: little book that we made. And so we just,
0: we just, Podcast buddies.
1: <laughs> what's well, interesting, and I don't know if you've seen this also in the snowboarding community, but the podcasting community—I've been in it for five plus years now. Like, we go to the conferences; we all like to help each other out. Uh, we all are cheering for each other's shows, and, and we, we try to like make, make a lot of these, you know, cross connections as much as possible. You know,
0: it's funny because I've been involved with uh, with media from from the snowboarding side for a long time, and. You know, we were always competitive with like our competitors, right? We we always saw them as like our competition. And in the podcast world, it seems like more like we have camaraderie. And we're supporting each other. And I actually talk to all the other podcasters who operate in the action sports space, mm-hmm. kinda, um, you know, talk to them as well. And so we try to give each other advice and, you know, talk about all sorts of stuff. So I'd say, yeah, there's more camaraderie than competition as compared to some of the other,
1: uh, you know, media ventures I've worked in. Have you heard of Shelby Stanger? She's the host of Wild Ideas Worth Living.
0: I've heard the name. And I've heard of the podcast, but I, okay. I haven't listened to it. I'm I'm really busy. With, <laughs> I, I end up <laughs> no, like she's... I put out two shows a week, so I don't listen yeah. to a lot of other shows.
1: Yeah, I just thought you might have uh, crossed paths. She's I helped her launch her show, and it got picked up by REI. Oh, cool. Um, which, is, which is pretty cool. That's um, probably where I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got a couple of threads to un- unpack here with your life, because uh, it seems like you've got a, a couple of varied interests. So let's start with probably the common thread through all of it is the snowboarding. Yeah. So how were you introduced to that? And and do you remember your, your first introduction to the sport? Sure. I mean,
0: it's basically, you know, ever since that first day, I was 14 years old and I was on my... Family's first ski vacation out west, we went to Jackson Hole and I broke my skis. And, um, and I was like, Oh, do I go telemark skiing or do I go snowboarding? And so I went snowboarding because it was more affordable and uh, for the rental equipment, less equipment to rent. And like literally from the first day, I was hooked and I was like, This is what I want to do with my life. And my parents were like, <laughs> Yeah, 14 year old kid, whatever. You can, you know, you're going to. You'll figure out you're going to want to be a doctor or a lawyer or something yeah. one day, and uh, no, and I just never looked back, and so I became, you know, at a fairly young age, a sponsored athlete, and so I had you know companies supporting me, and I would go to events, competitions. Eventually, got to the point where I was kind of like filming for for vhs mm-hmm. videos that kind of thing this is like prior to dvds even yeah, yeah and just like kept following it but then my dad told me and as i was trying to pursue this like professional snowboarding career my dad was like look you're your brain is smarter than your knees and you know one day i got hurt i think i separated my shoulder and i was laid up for six or eight weeks and i was like i think actually he might have been on to something mm, there yeah As, you know no one's gonna tell a teenager you know what's what's up but uh but eventually it sunk in and so i got an education never gave up on the snowboarding and then eventually got into the the snowboarding media and so I worked in, like, print publications and a little bit in television as well uh, on behalf of snowboarding for, you know, after I graduated college.
1: Yeah, you had um, a hand in a couple of different snowboard magazines, right? Yeah, I mean, I actually started
0: making my own mags i got my hands on like a media kit from like the biggest mag and i was like wait a minute if i could do this myself i'm gonna be rich and so i just like i just started i didn't know anything anything about like desktop publishing which was like new at the time yeah yeah, yeah. um you know prior to that everything was done with like Page layouts or whatever paginations or I don't know. Uh, yeah, PageMaker. I used PageMaker
1: back in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No,
0: I had like PageMaker to start, and then uh then you know it took years. The Quark Express, then InDesign. Eventually, wow, that's right. Quark so, Express. But I had to teach myself. I had to make like every mistake in the book. And so, like I remember, I I published this one mag, and I went to a trade show with the first one, and I made like a thousand copies of my first little quote unquote zine. And I went to this trade show and like literally I distributed all 1,000 copies in like two or three hours. And it was like, oh, you're on to mm. something. And like everywhere you look, there were people looking at it. So I was like, okay, cool. <laughs>
1: That's cool.
0: And then, you know, I went to do another one because there was like a- some momentum that had already been built and so i made a second one and this one wasn't black and white it went to color well little did i know about like color correction or how you know scanning worked any of that stuff didn't know anything i was just like yeah we'll just make a color magazine no problem so, make this color when I remember going to the the printing house this time we printed ten thousand, and so I go to pick it up at the printer, the first copies, and the guy's like, "Oh man, looks like you guys are having a lot of fun in the mountains, you know <laughs> and I was like eighteen years old or something wow. at the time and and uh and he's like, "Yeah, but uh, I just wanted to ask you how did you do your color correction? And I just remember looking at the guy and being like what's color correction and so you know that pretty much set me off on this path is like okay so you may have this passion but like you're going to want to put some kind of like um you know some kind of education something behind it because it's like mm. i spent thousands of dollars printing this zine that really i mean there was no color correction i didn't even know that that term existed and so yeah. like all the colors were dark and it looked basically terrible and so that's when i kind of decided that i would Go back to school, finish up school. I was kind of like splitting my time between being a sponsored snowboarder and going to college, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to finish school. I'm going to really learn how to make magazines. And so then I went back to college, made a magazine while I was going to college, another one, and then basically by the time I graduated college, I had like all the other existing magazines uh, wanting to give me a job. So I actually had three job offers from two magazines when I graduated, so... And then I moved to California and and uh, never looked back. What year
1: was that? That was like 96 I graduated college. So, yeah. I get the sense of just from the couple of stories you've already told that you're a bit of a, a, a do-it-yourselfer, like kind of figure things out uh, <laughs> as, as, you, as you go along. Very much so. Very much so. And for better or worse
0: these days, because I think that, you know, you know, I mean, I, I did go and work at Snowboarder Magazine, which is like part of Surfer Publications at the time. We went through four or five ownership changes in the seven years I was there. But, uh, you know, I learned how kind of the pros did it. But then, of course, I went back out on my own and started another magazine a few years later, and that was pretty successful as well. So I've always had this kind of thread of entrepreneurship as well as, you know, trying to also – push myself always kind of use that idea of like constant progression and so that's kind of really the one thing beyond snowboarding that like can tie to every part of my career is this idea of kaizen or constant improvement and so looking at what you did in the past refining it and then trying to make it a little bit better each little baby step of the way and so if anything, I would say that is really the, the thread that ties everything together is the idea of improving. And so snowboarding, it's tricks, but in publishing, it could be distribution, it could be sales, it could be how you write a story or lay out a page or whatever. So lots, lots of different aspects. Podcasting, of course, is a whole different set of challenges.
1: Yeah. You, know? so, <laughs> where'd you Where'd you pick up the Kaizen? Is that something you picked up when you were in school? Or? Yeah, I,
0: I learned that in business school. I was going to college and it was like... I believe it was a business philosophy that we actually brought to, I think McCarthy brought to Japan after World War II. And so, you know, the little story they teach you in the marketing textbooks is like, you know, they took this idea of Kaizen and it like they went from making a maker of like, you know cheap trinkets and toys in Japan to being like one of the best quality manufacturers in the world. And that's based on this idea of Kaizen. So like companies like Honda went from making lawnmowers to scooters, to motorcycles yeah. to cars based on the the philosophy of Kaizen. And so it's it's funny I've actually done a couple of interviews where it's like literally like, you know, I'm interviewing the person, and they're like, and I have this one philosophy that I follow, and it's called. And I'm just like, kaizen and we both say it at the same time and it's like we just like have this like moment where we stopped and like it's like literally like the needle comes off the record it's like you too oh wow <laughs> so yeah, yeah i'd say there are people out there who follow that philosophy and it's it's been successful for me as far as just having the reward of like knowing that i'm not just like doing the same thing i did in the past and sitting on my hands or whatever i'm always mm. trying to progress myself
1: is that a trait that runs in your family or is there anyone that you remember as a as a mentor that you looked up to who kind of was wor- working that way or was inspiring you?
0: Yeah, I mean, my dad was like my big inspiration. So my dad was a guy who was an orphan growing up and then he ended up forging mm. his birth certificate to get into World War II. And wow. he got stationed in Pearl Harbor and he went and did the whole World War II thing. And then he got out and he... Uh, was a fairly smart guy and so he ended up going to columbia university and graduating from there and having a pretty successful career but it was always kind of on his own terms he ended up becoming a lawyer and um and basically had his own law firm he worked for other firms then he had his own law firm and so he just told me when i was like probably eight or ten years old like hey if you're working for someone else you're making them money and so, you know, I've always had that in the back of my head, I guess, and I'm kind of like, dad, damn you, damn you, because it's like it's so much easier to not have to worry about how every single bill is going to get paid and when you yeah. are collecting or selling or whatever. Yep. There's a, a lot more moving parts than just like I just do, you know, just stay between the guardrails, do a good job, go as fast as you can, and, and that'll be enough. You know, with entrepreneurship, there's a lot more to it.
1: Yeah, I was, uh, I've was. i done the hybrid, I guess, because like, I was in corporate America for 20 plus years. And it's it's very telling that one day where you look in your account and that direct deposit check no longer appears <laughs> in your bank account, you know, your, your, I know. your paycheck. <laughs> that one day that happens, you're like, oh, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm, res- I'm responsible
0: for my own uh, well-being. Yeah, and so I've been on that track now for, oh boy, like 15 years i've been like making my own paychecks happen so um you know i've started businesses and run fairly uh you know different sized businesses throughout that time but yeah for 15 years now i've been relying you know on myself basically to to make it work
1: talk a little bit about the the current state of print uh, i don't know how involved you are with that um, but i'm wondering you know people in this day and age i think still even have dreams of running a magazine and and it's you know sometimes even when you think of newspapers you see some of these movies make glamorize it some some of it so i'm wondering for, for listeners who've who've maybe had ideas of it or, or thought of working with that what's what's the current state as far as you know in terms of like if it's still viable
0: that's uh you know i'd say that print is on the ropes so to speak as far as like as a medium and it's because of the cost of like having like the the physical product and having to create a physical product and, and distribute the physical product, you know, there's a lot of expense. And so when I first got into magazines in the 90s, it was like still, you know, magazines really were like a, a primary form of media back then. And I would say almost are secondary today. But back then you would have like your subscribers, your distribution, Right or your subscribers and your like newsstand sales and then your advertising sales. So you had like three revenue streams. Well, you know, with the internet and the ability to disperse content or whatever, more freely distribution has actually become gone from a revenue stream to an expense. Hmm. And so now you actually pay for your subscribers. It's like, oh 99 for a year subscription. It's like it actually costs them $2 a copy to fulfill that subscription and then you know like newsstands like okay airports that's a good place to have a magazine but it's like yeah they charge you like a thousand bucks an airport to to put your magazine out there so you better ship them a lot and you better sell a lot uh at the airport so really the only way to make money is with advertising and so what we've seen you know beyond the actual business model changing is the editorial model has changed it used to be in my Days like this idea of church and state where it's like okay the editorial is not affected by the advertising Mm -hmm. and they're two independent kind of different things and so today it's like because the only form of revenue comes from advertising the the barrier between church and state um has really been broken down and so now you'll see more than ever, this kind of pay for play content and less of this like investigative journalism or people really doing deep dives and trying to uncover facts or whatever. It's more like they're just a different kind of uh, springboard for their advertiser. Right. And so I just think the role of media has changed. And, and also by the way, like kids don't read magazines. Like I have kids they don't yeah. read magazines. Like I was in the business from like my whole career. And it's like, you put a magazine in their hand. They like look through it. And they're like, what do I do with this? You're like, Hey, you're going to have to go to the bathroom sometime. They're <laughs> like, I could be on my phone in the bathroom too. And it's like, exactly. oh, oh, well that's gross or something. You know, I don't really have a good reason. <laughs> so go figure. Yeah. But yeah, magazines, I'd say are, are, they need to reinvent themselves basically to, to be valid
1: today. What would you say uh, from the the years you spent working in the print industry is something that you took away, as far as um, a lesson learned or something about how to do business or, or something that you still carry with you to this day? Just the ability to make mistakes and then and to
0: you know not let them be mortal wounds, mm. right? Mm. And it's like that first color correction that was a big mistake, right? Yeah. And like I was so green, so keen on on being involved with magazines i mean but it really was like a true and big mistake and so i've been willing to you know fate go charge headlong into into whatever venture and be willing to make mistakes and learn from them and adapt and so that's kind of part of that kaizen philosophy but really just the ability to be willing and to embrace mistakes you know the whole time and i've made big ones i've made little ones i probably make some every day so
1: there you go. I'm assuming you built up a nice relationships with, you know, readers, sponsors, you know, all those through all the years of doing that, that that you probably still maintain today. Yeah. I mean I'd say, yeah, I mean it's always been in this one
0: kind of niche category.
1: Yeah.
0: And so, you know, a lot of the some of the readers, I mean, for following me back in the magazine days are now listeners today. Um, you know, a lot of the advertisers, even though some of the people change, the brands are still the same and I still have connections throughout them. So certainly, you know, I've been able to maintain connections, you know, in there. But that also puts kind of like a burden on you to be like, you know, people have you've already set a standard for yourself and people have this expectation for yourself. So it's not like you're coming you know, out of left field and you people already have this preconceived notion of what you're going to do, what you're going to make or whatever, versus like being someone who, you know, I'm kind of envious a little bit about people who can
1: come out of nowhere and just be like, hey, I got this idea and here's how I'm going to approach it, you know. Help me with the timeline because after you did that and then you were still in the snowboarding, You at some point you also started commentating on, on some of the yeah. events as well, right? Yeah. yeah, that was pretty early
0: on actually. I started commentating – you know, professional events, I want to say in like the late 90s. And so basically I was at... Um a professional snowboarding event. I was working for Snowboarder Magazine at the time, but there was, like, one of the kid's dads commentating, and he was like, and Jimmy and Johnny went out on Saturday (laughs) night, and they got in trouble, and I was like, give me that thing. That's called a McTwist. That's a 540. And I just started calling tricks, and then, you know, the guy who was running the event was like, hey, you're pretty good. You want to do some more of that? And, like, it just happened because I was like this. This guy was like... (laughs) Basically, just not commenting on the actual, like, tricks and the competition, Mm -hmm. things that I appreciated, right, he was not commenting on. He was just kind of giving some little stories or whatever. And so ever since then, I just kind of snowballed. And then, you know, in 2002, I announced the Olympics, and then I've worked in television as well. You know, just basically more behind the scenes, actually, than in front of the scenes in television. But certainly, I've had some some pretty exciting uh, adventures based on just being involved in different aspects of the media.
1: What's one story that comes to mind?
0: Oh, man, there's, there's lots of them. I mean, I've been to five Olympics. So, here's one from the last one. This is yeah. like, so when you first go to the Olympics, your first Olympics, you're like, oh man it's like a lot of pressure and the whole world is watching so i can't mess this up well you go to four or five and you're kind of like okay i know it's like there's there's yeah there's perimeter security everywhere i'm gonna have my credential never take it off you know there's certain like rules you start living by like like literally i'm sleeping in my credentials or whatever so anyhow (laughs) at this last olympics in korea the last one i went to I have access to almost everything it's like literally when you have a television pass it's like an infinity pass you can go anywhere so i was over at the germany house and so the germany house like every country will have like a house where they have their local cuisine and like their in the germany house their umpa band or whatever they try to bring like a flavor of germany and every stereotype of german culture is embodied in this one house same thing for france italy yeah you know every, every so a lot of a bra-
1: lot of bratwurst and beer exactly exactly
0: <laughs> and it's all free right if you can get in and and so anyhow, I ended up losing my wallet at the house. I I had a backpack. I had to put it through security. And for whatever reason, I lost my wallet, all my money, all access to money. And so people who I'm working with, I I was working for Eurosport Television, but they're like, oh, my God, what are you going to do? How are you going to figure? I'm like, you know what? Actually, I'm just going to go with it. I'm actually, no, they're like, let me lend you some money. I'm like, no, I'm going to see how I can make the Olympics work with no money. And so basically, I went for 10 days to the Olympics with no money whatsoever, zero, zero cash. And I had a credential, which could get me food where I could eat, and I had a place to stay already. But literally, my experience just got better and better and better because people are like, oh, my God, you're the guy who lost as well. Oh, here, we should take you to this party over here. You're going to want to go see this because, oh, I feel so bad for you. Come with us. And so, like, I just got all these doors opened up for me. Wow. And so, for 10 days, I didn't have a penny. And then, you know, by the end, I was like, okay, I'll borrow some money. Now, I got to bring some souvenirs home for my kids. But I was like, yeah. you know what? It just goes to show that, like, you can make it work if you want to. So, yeah, there's there's one story. I mean, that's one of many because I've definitely um, – just being a snowboarder, you, you're yeah. kind of like – flirting with the uh, the edge of rules, let's say. Yeah, that's true. And so, you know, being someone who's got an infinity pass at the Olympics and someone who's used to flirting with rules, um, you know, that's, that's someone who can really utilize an infinity
1: pass to its full advantage. Well, it sounds like you took it almost as a challenge. Like when you saw the situation you were in and, and someone were initially they started offering the money and you were like, well, it's almost like a little life experiment.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was. And you know what? I mean, I did have a safety net there. I had a place to stay, and I could, yeah, like, yeah. go go get food. So it wasn't, like, fully, like, being thrown out on the streets and being like, okay, figure it out. But it was still another challenge. But that, you know, that was based on a bunch of other things that I had done at other Olympics. Like, okay, let's see where this pass takes me. And, oh, wow, I can go have a beer with the commissioner of the NHL now. And I can get into here. I can go anywhere. And so let's see, you know, where I can go and, and check it out. So I've had some... Pretty pretty cool experiences at the Olympics, and uh, and something that you know I cherish anyway. As far as like you know, it may not pay a ton, but it certainly makes you a richer person for the experience. Oh
1: yeah, that's one of those lifetime experiences. Yeah. So, did you have a lot of ch- opportunities to in- engage with the? Um, athletes I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that we we produced a show for someone who's uh, on the 2008 gymnastics team Samantha Peszek, and so just I have a lot of admiration for literally what it takes to be the caliber of an athlete that gets to that you know top percentage of a percent that you're performing basically at the top of your game and I'm wondering if you've if you've got an, an idea for what that was like having been to all these olympics and and you know the caliber of these athletes
0: yeah i mean i would say so i mean you know even starting at the snowboarder magazine days i mean i started off as an athlete so i had an appreciation from that but then i ended up becoming you know within a couple years the editor-in-chief of snowboarder magazine so i was right on the front lines with every athlete the rider of the year the video party year, all those things like i was dealing with that and kind of shepherding that process along a little bit um and then at the Olympics. You know, basically I would interact with all the athletes and even like at the last Olympics, I was the guy who for, you know, for Eurosport television, which goes to 48 countries, I was the guy who did the corral interviews for all the snowboarders and skiers. So for like 16 events, win, lose or draw, I was one of the first interviews that you gave. And so I would get like two minutes with each person. You know, just to speak with them about whatever, and so whether it was like, okay, they delivered on the expectation, they failed to deliver. You know, it's like there's no thrill of victory without the agony of defeat. So I tried to always play those kind of different cards and tell those stories. Um, So yeah, I, I definitely have been involved with the with the athletes. You know, the whole time, I would say, in fact, that I would say I'm more closely tied to the athletes almost than the business side. Now, granted, I've taken steps back over time, just depending on my role, whether or not, you know, I'm going to be involved, you know, as much with the athletes or more with like the, the marketing guys, or the people writing the checks. But certainly I've always had some kind of relationship with the athletes. And I think that's reflected, you know, in the people that are in the podcast, too. Like I have like a, Mm -hmm. you know, the future Olympians, the guys who qualify for the next one, they're on the podcast and the guys who've won the gold medals, they're on the podcast too. So certainly, you know, I have leveraged my, my contacts. It's definitely based on a network that I've spent
1: 30 years establishing. That's a good segue to jump into the the podcast thing. But one last question on the actual, the athletes and the mindset, you've spoken to folks who've actually made it and, and been to the, that level of the Olympics and then people that, You know, for whatever reason, don't have what it takes to get to that level. Do you notice something in like that? That those two types, like, what does it take? Because um, there must be something special to to actually get to that level. Yeah, they floss their teeth.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, you know, I don't think there's actually anything that's like, you know, I would say that the guys who actually excel as athletes are guys who really care less about the. They're, they're about the process of learning and less about, like, mm. what kind of reward. They're, they're not about the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. They're about the rainbow. Oh, yeah. And so the people who I think are successful are the people who focus on those, like, incremental baby steps to get to that point. And eventually it's like, oh, yeah, and we got a gold medal for you too, right? It's like that is, like, the... The result of all of those little baby steps, but the people who are sitting there and be like, oh man, I wish I could win a gold medal, a gold medal, a gold medal. It's like those are the people who aren't going to win the gold medal. It's like the for the people who just focus on the act of doing it and the passion for the sport,
1: those are the people who end up succeeding
0: as far as athletes
1: go. Yeah, I think that 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 bodes well for or it's good advice for people. In life as well, and entrepreneurs, I think that that applies. Yeah, yeah, it it probably does.
0: Like, if you don't enjoy the doing of it, if you're just looking at the 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 end result,
1: you're probably not going to get there. Actually, because there's (laughs) a lot
0: of work, a lot of work that goes into it.
1: So, I the way you're painting the picture is really interesting because you know you've got this. Culture, this ethos of like do it yourself, learn something new, jump into it feet first. Then you get the opportunity to follow your passion, which is snowboarding. You grab the mic from your father's, your friend's father, and you start (laughs) broadcasting uh, and learning as you go. And then you get to start having all these great interviews and learning about how to have an interview. Because I'm sure the first, you know, your your most recent interview doesn't sound anything like your first interview. Um, Oh,
0: no. (laughs) I mean, not even from the magazine days. It's like now, I mean, really the Olympics are the thing that, that you know, interviewing people for TV and having that one chance where well, there's like interviewers from every country, mm-hmm. right, all the way down in this like thing called the mix zone. And when you get your chance and like, there's the gold medalist and they're coming. Okay. You're next. You got like, and it's like literally you could see the countdown because they're like interview here. Then they go to the next person. They get interviewed there. Like, okay. I'm next. Oh man. And it's like, l- you cannot mess this up. You don't, you will not get a second <laughs> chance. And so yeah. that's kind of the thing that like made me realize and doing that then over 16 events for the winners and the losers and everything. It like. Actually gave me like a new skill, like a force, like literally just that, like being on that edge and that pressure of like, literally you will never work again in three, two, one, go. Right. And like having that pressure, like and doing that, like so many times that gave me the confidence now to, to walk into any view interview and and basically do it with little to no preparation sometimes i mean literally like some of these athletes like hey some some people are surprising you had no idea they came out of left field you had no idea who they were they were unexpected and so you got to be able to handle them as well so yeah i definitely learned some some techniques there that i apply now more that i didn't know when i was doing like print print interviews because it was Mm. like oh yeah you just record the interview and then you edit it together you transcribe it and edit it and so it doesn't have to be this like one question is building is a building block from the last question which which has to tell a complete story from start to finish so i would say that it's actually like television podcasts the those interview skills are vastly different than the ones that i learned in the the 90s working in
1: print Mm. When you have that short of a window um do you have a goal in mind like if I can ask the one question that will get me this or I mean cuz otherwise you just sound like every other interviewer so did you did you start to hone or a, a thought process for like or some sort of method that you came up with that was at least got you something that was hopefully different than what your colleagues were asking
0: yeah i mean i i would say that i was able to Basically, I came up with a new technique, which uh, which I refined, and I'll share it with you, because uh, you know podcasters look out for each other, right? Of course. Yeah. So, so here's the thing: is like I I developed like I when I'm interviewing people, I have like this hamster wheel in my head that's like kind of thinking about like what where I'm going next. Yeah, we all do. Yeah, and so what I did at the Olympics because of the pressure and literally it just like was something in me that broke. But basically, it broke, and there was a second hamster wheel there spinning. And so now, so I have two hamster wheels going in my head at all times, basically when I'm interviewing someone and one hamster wheel is like listening to what they're saying and intentionally just listening to, to what they're asking me or what they're, what they're saying. You know, if they're, I'm interviewing them usually. And so they're telling me something and I'm trying to listen to that. And then the other one is what I call the batter's box hamster wheel. And so what I'm doing there is I'm just basically practicing questions. And so I'll just take like something they say i'll stick a hook in it and pull it over to the other hamster wheel so it's like oh and then i broke my leg and then it's like uh, uh, that goes over to the other hamster wheel and i'm like broken leg broken leg broken (laughs) leg broken leg on this hamster wheel and this one's still listening to them telling you about their broken leg or whatever what effect it had but i'm practicing questions on the other one to be like okay now how do i ask this question and so i'll literally take from whatever they're saying And basically my follow-up question is almost always based on something they're saying right now in that moment. So it always almost sounds conversational, right? Mm -hmm. In that I'm Mm -hmm. always taking something they said and then framing that into the next question. And so basically I would go into all these interviews, the Olympics, you have two minutes, so that's two or three questions. I'd go in with one question and then I would just sit there and try to pull something over onto that other hamster wheel. And then I'd just start swinging on questions in that batter's box. Like, okay, broken leg. Was it hard to come back? How long did it take you? Like, you know, it's like, what is that question? That's going to be the follow-up based on what they're actually telling me right now, you know, or maybe they mentioned their family. And so you're like, okay, well, what role did your family have in this? Or, you know, it's always like taking something they said And then figuring out and just like practicing questions enough as they're still talking, you're practicing these questions. So when they're done, you can give them that next question. And, you know, in two or three minutes, it's like, and with that pressure, you know, it's hard and easy because it's like over. Like once it's begun, there's only two or three questions, only two follow-up questions. But when you can do it for an hour and a half or two hours and just sit there and people are like, wow, it just seems like you guys were talking. It's like. Oh no, that was a hard one. <laughs> that, that was not easy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and usually there's a lot of research that goes into it too. You know, where you're like, okay, I know kind of like, as I'm pulling these ideas from one wheel to the other. Yeah. You know, I kind of know enough about it where I can ask a, a suitable question about that
1: subject. It's a skill. It I means active listening. I think uh, a lot of podcasters take it for granted. I, I've just. Designed to be a student of the interview process itself. I'm, I'm fascinated by people who can conduct uh, long form interviews. You know, Joe Rogan does three hours. Yeah. Or even people, or even like what you said is another skill. The fact that you get three minutes or two minutes, that's a whole nother skill set. And the fact that there's so much happening in that process, it sounds exhausting to the listener. I'm sure that, like, wow, all these things are happening in the span of two minutes. But I think you take so much pride in what you do, it sounds like that you're conscious of just making the most of the time you have. And also, I think as a listener, sometimes I listen to podcasts and I always want the host to ask that follow-up question. And sometimes when they don't, I'm like, oh man, I wish you would ask them about the leg.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I don't think there really is like a, a set formula for it, but oh yeah, here's one other thing that I do that I think is probably a good tip for interviewing, right? Which is like, so as part of this last Olympics, I was working for Eurosport, 48 countries, like I don't know how many languages. So not everyone has great English. And i I, that's my one and only language, basically. I speak some German, (laughs) but like, Yeah. yeah, English. And so what I realized is like not everyone would understand the question. And so what I got to the point where I would ask a question in two ways, like I would ask it like the, the most direct way and then i would kind of explain it in like the long format question ask so like one Mm. would be like you know like how do you celebrate your victory okay now that all the pressure is off your shoulder so if they're like a if english isn't their first language you actually give them time even if they heard it in the first part like you give them the question really quickly but then you give them like about 10 seconds of like reiterating the question to like think about their answer and i've actually found that handy even if english is the first language because it's like if you're going to ask someone a hard question you kind of boom you put them like right up on the head you give them that tough question but then you like just restate the question just to allow them time to think about it yeah instead of like how did that change your
1: life (laughs) go go, yeah so yeah, it sort of it gives them that uh, a little bit of a runway there to think about their answer. And so and and also fills dead space, you know, obviously with podcasts as well. If people like hear a silence, they think like, oh, something is did I lose the connection or did something happen or uh, yeah. it wasn't edited properly or something like that. Yeah.
0: So those are like kind of like the two techniques that I use. And certainly that like double ask the question is something yeah. to allow your people to just think for a second. You know, and and it also, by the way, eliminates like some of the um, uh, yep. um, type of stuff. You know, I did one interview it was two hours long. I I uh, edited out over ten minutes of ums.
1: Mm. So yeah, we've all been there, definitely. Yeah. When did podcasting make it onto your radar? Well, I've known about it for a long time,
0: but I would say so a few years ago. I. I built this cabin in Alaska. It's like a remote cabin. I think it's like the best place in the world to be a skier or snowboarder, but that's just personal opinion. Well,
1: well, thanks to you, I now have a cabin in Alaska hamster wheel on the side, but go ahead. Yeah, so <laughs> so anyhow, um, but there's no electricity,
0: there's no running water, but there's a place I can walk to that has Wi-Fi, and so like how do you entertain yourself, you know, having to walk to your Wi-Fi connection then walk home and entertain yourself for eight hours? Well, that's really where I discovered podcasting, and I knew about it. I would listened a little bit, you know, here or there, but it was more... Like a side thing, but then once I was like downloading, you know, like four or five hours of podcast and listening to four or five hours a day hanging out in my mm-hmm. cabin in Alaska, you know, that's really when like I became like a true fan. And then, and then Rogan, just the way that like he would like, I had worked in media for a long time and I'd worked in all sorts of formats, but actually I'd never worked in a format that was like three hours, two to three hours, right? Like a print interview is essentially like a magazine feature, like a print interview in a magazine, is essentially the transcription of a 20-minute conversation, Mm -hmm. right? And so what I realized is like even an hour interview, that's like three times as long as like a major interview in a magazine. So it's a different kind of format. But the fact that like Rogan could like just peel back so many layers, like layer after layer after layer, I'm like, this is something new. This is something actually different. This is more in-depth, and, and I'm actually getting more out of this. And that's when I was like, okay, this is actually like a almost a richer form, of richer media content because it's like, okay, yeah, yeah you can see people, and like magazines are visual. Action sports are really visual in their nature. But actually, this is a way to kind of like get to a deeper level. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And so then I did that for a while and that's kind of like Genesis. And then within six months of that, I was like really kind of trying to figure it out in er- earnest, you know? And so I just knew about, you know, doing interviews already had the experiences with the Olympics and stuff. And so yeah. kind of had some interviewing technique and just started conducting interviews and then heard about pod fading. And so I did like, I don't know, 40 or 50 interviews before I even launched. Wow, And uh, and that was actually, that was like a really good time, just like when I was racking all those interviews because no one had any expectations of what it was or what it would be. And so they were pretty easy and open to it. What year did it launch? It launched in 2018. In
1: 2018, okay. So yeah,
0: it's been about a year and a half or so. But certainly it's been full time and then some.
1: Was there anything about the medium itself that you were surprised by or that was was something you, you knew that you had to learn? Because obviously you had all the, you had the contacts, you had the experience interviewing, you had this, obviously, this DIY um, ethos. So you had all the parts. Was yeah. there anything about podcasting itself that um, you were surprised by or had to learn? Oh, I like the audio stuff
0: has mm. been a huge challenge just to learn about and editing. I mean, I, I could edit film and stuff, so I knew kind of conceptually timelines and that. But just learning about the editing and, like, the audio quality and how to reproduce, you know, audio. And then, you know, this year it's been more about producing um, remote interviews. And so something – I do a weekly news show. And so something I'll do is, like, pull in people from all over the world. And, you know, on one news show I'll have, like, seven interviews from seven countries. And just kind of pull in the the news of snowboarding, almost like you're, you know – cnn type news show where they have like the talking head or whatever and so i'll check in with people all over the world to get firsthand reports of what's going on on the ground so that that's been kind of like you know different and then i would just say the freedom of format you know the fact that like there aren't these like hard set rules which is like heck in television it's like okay is it uh you know if it's a half hour show then it's 22 minutes of content or 44 (laughs) minutes of content or whatever it's like there are these set formats and you stick in these between these guardrails well with podcasting i feel like the there aren't these guardrails in place not not hard and fast guardrails anyway and like the, one of the you know big things has been like figuring out how to monetize it, and so it's like the numbers are there, and we should be able to monetize it, but I don't want to work with brands that are not dr- – I'm working with endemic brands to snowboarding, mm-hmm. right? So the board manufacturers, the clothing manufacturers, yeah, the yeah, people yeah. who sell lift tickets, those are the people that I want to work with, not like the – Oh, here's your uh, you know, vitamin water or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So I'm I'm working with like endemic brands. I'll probably have a beer brand at some point cuz hey, who doesn't like a <laughs> beer? But uh anyhow, the um that to me was like that's when I really realized how like like the name of my business is Uncharted Waters, but really trying to monetize podcasting is is what taught me how uncharted these waters really are cuz yeah, like yeah. people in the action sports world like we don't do old-timey radio ads. And I'm like, old-timey radio ads? Do you
1: you re- realize what kind of targeted audience I have, you know, and how much they engage with this? I think they're starting to wake up to it because it's also the ability to, like, you tell me how you can effectively measure the the ROI of your ad on a radio or, or in a magazine spread as opposed to, like, I'll tell you because you know maybe use a code or something like that that people are listening and taking action from my ad read about your product on my podcast and this is what it's turning into. Yeah,
0: yeah. So that that is uh, something that it's definitely uncharted water still because we're still working out kind of like how to. To, I would say that's the biggest challenge is like not producing the audio, not making the content or getting the interviews. It's the monetization of it and getting the mm-hmm. brands to understand the value of it. And so this year, last year, we we did like a Patreon only model yeah. and that didn't bring in enough revenue really to to justify the, the effort anyway. And so this year we went to actual advertising spots and uh, I would say that, That's still kind of a work in progress, still a work in progress. But it's also, you know, because they don't know what they're getting into. We've also had the freedom on our side to create whatever kind of ads we want to see what kind of works. And so, you know, I've done everything from ad reads to like interviewing their top pro athletes to interviewing company owners to get Mm -hmm. like, I did this like one ad campaign with this brand, Never Summer, where literally, I interviewed people who work on their factory floor. And just to give people like this idea that like hey, that. this is something that like it's made in America and you can really believe in this brand and these people, you know, sixty families rely on this brand or whatever. And so that was like an ad campaign where I do like a minute interview with like all these guys who like work in a wood shop basically making snowboards. Nice. And I I thought it was cool and different, but like, you know, if you were in print you're like okay here's like the guardrails now you have a sponsored athlete the guy's like has all these like trophies and medals and won the x games yeah. and so people look up to him. and it's like there's like more set ways to do it with podcasting i feel like it there aren't really as many accepted ways to do things and like good audio i think people can agree is accepted but beyond that you know i don't know that there's a lot of hard and fast rules and to me it's like the first podcast i got into rogan was like that broke broke every media rule exactly. I I mean, It's like how how often does he put them out whenever he likes how long are they <laughs> however long they're gonna be yeah.
1: and Just mostly like, always okay. three three hours yeah i think it's he's the beauty of what he's repeatedly said is that he's the station owner, he's the marketing manager, he's the editor, he's the producer, like he's the booker, like he literally controls every aspect of the whole program like we all do with our shows, right? So we yeah. can decide what the rules are and and if, as long as your audience is resonating with what you're producing, that's really all that matters because that's all you're beholden to, like the people who are actually listening week in and week out to your show.
0: Yeah, and I I my guess is anyway that people want to hear different stuff. If everyone yeah. You know, if everyone looks at Rogan as like, let's copy Rogan, then it's like, well, how do you how do you play foil to that? How do you create something mm-hmm. that's like, I mean, there's like three rules in marketing and that's like my background. When I went to college, I did go for marketing, but it's like, you're the leader, the low cost provider differentiated. Mm. And so, you know, being the fact there's five to 700,000 or more podcasts out there right now, it's like really the only terrain that you're going to be able to take if you don't have the backer of some big podcast network or someone really putting some funding behind you you're not going to be a leader and you don't want to be a low-cost provider because i think everyone falls into that trap of like hey i make podcasts for free because it's a hobby but it's like how do you make something that's both compelling and different something that is going to inspire an audience to want to tune in week after week but also be different than the other options they have in in those categories like I operate in wilderness and sports or whatever mm-hmm. and like in that category or comedy or tech or whatever you want to be
1: different. Yeah. And I don't know if you've heard of pod news. It's a, it's a daily newsletter about the podcasting industry, I do, so, uh, but it's like what, yeah. two minutes long, three minutes long, <laughs> Yeah, It's yeah, like yeah.
0: a good one. Cause it's like, it doesn't take Perfect. up much time. And so it's like, yeah. okay, two, three minutes, I'll get plugged in with things daily and so that makes me rethink. What I'm doing, I mean, I do a news show once a week right now, and I'm Mm -hmm. wrestling around with this format right now because it's hard to get the news and the interviews I want to get from all over the world in less than an hour and 45 minutes. And it's like, Hmm. but I don't believe for a minute that people have an hour and 45 minutes to tune into the weekly snowboarding news, unless you're one of those one percenters, right? The one percenter, sure. But like, you know, I I think that there's got to be a more palatable way
1: to do that. And you look at pod news, and certainly they have a different approach. Yeah. How did you decide on the format cuz I noticed that you have uh, a tip line so people are calling in um on yeah. that as well and and you also have a co-host Dustin?
0: Yeah. I got a co-host Dustin and so you know I would say right now like our I have basically like two shows a week right now. One is an interview show, traditional kind of long form interview so it's just basically a conversation and that will cover people. I mean, I've interviewed everything from like an 18-year-old kid who 10 years from now will be the most famous you know, snowboarder in the world mm-hmm. like he's literally I did an interview on in the day he signed his first pro contract and I was wow. like okay this is I'll put my bets on green right here <laughs> so uh so anyhow I did like that and I also did like the vice president of marketing for Nike so those are like two totally opposite ends of the spectrum yeah. one guy's redesigning NFL uniforms and the other guy's like I don't know what my favorite music is cuz if like if I state it right now if people are going to judge me in the future for that <laughs> Right, and so it's just like for opposite ends of the spectrum, yeah. so that's one show is like the the open format interview, and the other one is like news show, and so we're actually still playing around with the format for that, you know, and that's really evolved. It started out the news show started out as just like me and my co-host just talking about the news back and forth, and then we started pulling in remote interviews, and then we started doing things where like, okay, well, we're going to have two kinds of remote interviews on our new show one is like a two-minute check-in what are the snow conditions what just happened at your local resort in poland or in japan and you know and the other one's like more like a deep dive like hey you just put out a movie last week let's talk about behind the scenes of the movie Mm. and that's like a 20-minute interview and both of those will be in the same show so we're still working out the new show formats but that's kind of the beauty of it it's like we take our feedback and some people like it and try to balance all the feedback we get and and keep modifying it. it's like we don't know where the the final format will be because there is no accepted format it's like if you're gonna do a you know if you look at like the news shows on like msnbc or cnn it's like they're 80 percent the same and 20 percent different yeah you know yeah. and so right now i feel like we're in a point at least with podcasting where you can literally just go in all different directions and see what works and that to me is exciting
1: has the tip line been helpful for folks to uh either give you feedback on how the show is doing or just provide content for the show
0: not as helpful as i would like i mean okay you know it I think it could be better utilized, and I think that uh, we could do a better job as far as like when we promote some shows, we'll put it like literally right at the end. So if you're the person who listened to like the last minute, okay, then you'll hear it. But I think if we were more consistent in our our feedback and not a lot of the feedback we get on the tip line is just like,
1: oh man, I'm stoked, Brad,
0: (laughs) you know, or something like that.
1: Have you looked at SpeakPipe? Um, It's a way for, it's basically the same, concept but it's they can use a browser and so they just push a button and they record right into their um, computer and it sends it you can do up to three minutes for free speakpipe.com okay um, and then you can just grab the snippet because you don't have to deal with like the phone the phone and stuff like that so yeah if you just and then edit it into your shows is pretty cool
0: i mean the tip line i'm doing is basically just goes to a google voicemail okay so it goes That's into great. a google voice say okay. just basically and it says like in the message it doesn't actually ring to my phone. It goes to like, hey, you've reached our tip line. Leave a message yeah. here. We'll get a recording of it, whatever. So it gives us an MP3, not a wave, but Very that's cool. fine. You know? what,
1: what's got you excited about the snowboarding industry? I'm, I'm sure you're, you're hearing about a lot of innovations happening there as well.
0: The thing is, it's like constantly in flux. So there's a, a bunch of different things that each have their own tracks. So on the resort track, I would say that there are these like season passes. Where you get this one season pass that ends up being good at like twenty resorts, and so the mm. trend there is that people are able to buy one season pass and like be a Mammoth local, but then also go to Whistler, or go to Jackson Hole, or go to other resorts. And so we're seeing, I think, one is the Icon Pass, the Mountain Collective, and the Epic Pass, and those ones basically have have uh, had people kind of traveling more and exploring more areas. So that's an exciting trend, especially in light of the fact that like Vale had like a $217 day pass over wow. Christmas break. It's like, who could even afford that? <laughs> anyway, and so, so I would say that's exciting that people, you know, who get to the point where they're good snowboarders or skiers can get a pass that can actually allow them to check out lots of different places, experience the adventure that goes beyond, you know, to me snowboarding is more about doing tricks or turning it's about the adventure of going to yeah. new places and meeting yeah, yeah. new people and different cultures and all that and so we definitely try to promote that you know from the snowboarding product side there are certainly you know incremental innovations I would say the biggest innovations happened in the nineties but really anytime there's you know something to talk about uh with product innovation, I think that you know those are just exciting little changes that happen every year and like we're getting right into the time where people are introducing next year's stuff Mm -hmm. you know so shops can buy it now and have it ready so people are talking about that right now but you know what really gets me excited is the act of participating in snowboarding and so really it's like i watch the weather and where the weather Mm. is good i know the snow will be good and then we'll cover it in our our weekly show and so it's really Exciting. exciting to me that we can pull in people from anywhere in the world so it's like wow, they just got dumped on in Russia. And I'll literally pull someone into the show to find out firsthand, to hear it from their voice with their funny accent and everything, what wow. the snow conditions in Russia were like this week. Very cool. So that that's kind of like the exciting crossover to me between podcasts and snowboarding. A snowboarding is constantly changing all over the world. And it's, yeah. it's like, you know, if Instagram is like the ultimate throwaway content and magazines are the ultimate keeper content that they are, physical thing you put on a shelf well podcasts are somewhere in between somewhere between
1: keepers and throwaways Mm -hmm. and so to me it's an exciting format medium very cool a couple of questions as we wrap up what's something you've changed your mind about recently something i've changed my mind about recently
0: oh boy well i would say just in regard to like how we monetize the show i've had to change i've had to evolve in my thinking i had this very egalitarian kind of view of like okay we're gonna have like only one product category per show and this is going to be exclusive like this or whatever and the reality is is that the industry isn't up to speed with this being a valuable input so so really it's like the thing that's changed is like hey if you're down with podcasting i'm down with you Hmm. you know versus like no no we're gonna do this like the right way only using like the right sponsors who who really have a stake in the business or whatever it's like you know what if you if you're going to believe in us, if you're going to be one of the first adopters of podcasting as a medium in action sports, and we're going to believe in you and and figure out how we can help get your brand message out there, so that's something that's evolved. What's the most misunderstood thing about you? Most misunderstood thing? I don't know. I <laughs> that uh, that my life is a vacation is definitely the opposite <laughs> of that you know it is definitely a lot more work than good times and though i talk about the fun of snowboarding and something that people see as recreation mm-hmm. it's it's
1: not 40 hours a week it's a lot more than that so but i imagine you do it because it lights you up and you can't imagine yourself doing anything else
0: yeah yeah i I do enjoy I don't feel like it's worked like so I tell people it's like I did have a job in 1994 it was at Pizza Hut and I got yelled (laughs) at by my boss to like mop the floor again or whatever it's like that's when I had a job but the rest has been pretty fun very
1: cool well Mark thanks for this uh wide-ranging call I'm glad we got to connect and I got to hear your story it's a lot of uh it seems like you've led a very exciting life and you're showing no signs of slowing down anytime soon Cool. Well, thank you very much, Eric. I appreciate it. Thanks for putting me on your show. What's the best way for folks to track you down, to listen to the show, and to connect with you?
0: Okay, so we're on like all the podcasting platforms on The Snowboard Project is the name of the show. Um, you can email me if you want to get really direct, at uh, Mark M A R K at theSnowboardProject or you can even call our tip line two zero eight four seven one eight double zero seven. Old school. <laughs> and leave yeah, us a message <laughs> there. So there you
1: go. There's three different ways. Well, thanks again. We'll make sure we have all the links to the show and your contact info in the show notes. Uh, and thanks for joining me today. Have a fantastic day. Cool. Thank you, Harry. So thanks to Mark for educating us on what's happening in the world of snowboarding as I look out the window and it's actually snowing outside from where I'm at right now. <laughs> I really love the fact that he had all these skills that he picked up along the way. He talks a little bit about uh, the obviously the passion for snowboarding and then uh, the commentating on the uh, events taking the mic from his his friend's uh, father and then his experience at the Olympics and then the magazine. It's so interesting, so interesting to see how he's pieced it all together. And the fact that he launched with 40 plus episodes is amazing. And it's just a testament. And That's something we actually talk about when we talk to clients about getting shows launched and having them in the can, not necessarily releasing them all, but just having them. It just It's just a stress release. Um, you don't have to be worried about what's coming next. And so he gave himself that runway, which is really amazing. So shout out again to Stephanie. Hart for another fantastic intro. If you'll remember, she introduced us to uh, Scott Gurian from Far From Home podcast. So that was good. Always looking for suggestions for guests. Super interesting. I think you know the flow. I think you know the vibe. And if you know folks that would be a good fit for this show, I'm looking to uh, expand out and make sure I have a consistent uh, stream of great, great conversations coming your way. And I'm getting really excited about uh, the ones we have coming up production and marketing for this episode provided by fullcast our full service done for you podcast production agency music by cedar and soil check out cedarsoil.com thanks to our show sponsor focus right and their amazing scarlet 2i2 i almost consider it the industry standard when it comes to sound cards they've created a nice landing page for details on their latest line go to podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus right Tune in next week for my conversation with Colin Morgan, host of the Daily Grind podcast. If you made it this far, the retention hashtag is SnowMark. There's no Twitter account for the Snowboard Project, so just do hashtag the Snowboard Project as well and tag podcast underscore junkies. Thanks for everything you do to support the show. Have a fantastic week.